You have to be bold enough to imagine something that's difficult to imagine and that freaks you out a little bit and would probably freak your kids out and maybe your kids' kids. And if you can do that, then you're kind of onto something. Jim Infantino is onto something. He recently published his first book, a science fiction novel that travels decades into the future to a time when people are far more interconnected than they are now, believe it or not, thanks to technology. And the ensuing developments create a sort of dystopia, utopia mixed bag. The book is called The Wakeful Wanderer's Guide to New New England. I actually got that title wrong at one point in the interview you're about to hear, even though I was halfway into reading the book when I talked to Jim Infantino. Last month when we got together, Jim talked about where he got the idea for this book and how it fits into the big picture of his wide-ranging interests in things when he's not writing novels. He is a songwriter and musician whose band Jim's Big Ego has for decades quite successfully recorded and performed around North America. And he runs a web design company called Slab Media. In fact, Jim designed and built my website and came up with a visual brand for the podcast. He's also gotten into podcasting and blogging. You'll hear parts of of three Jim's Big Ego songs in this podcast, and you'll learn about how Jim coped with not becoming a rock star ultimately, and you'll hear his advice for people who might want to try to build a life somewhat like his. Jim Infantino, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for uh, hanging out for a little bit today. It's my pleasure, Rob. I was in this office not too long ago when we were talking about my website. You you made my lovely website. Thank you so much for oh, that. Well, that was that was fun. You know, we first uh, I first became familiar with your work. I don't know, maybe twenty years ago, something like that. Uh, your music, your singer-songwriter work, and, yep. and uh, love your songs and saw you perform a number of times over the years. Um, and then we sort of ran across each other in meditation circles around right. Boston. And uh, and then when I decided to start a podcast, uh, I came to you to build my website. You've got this slab media company here where you make lots of websites. And, you know, I think it might have even, before I even launched my podcast, you launched a podcast. That's right. right. Yeah, um, we. I did. Um, uh, a man named Nadenya and I right. did a podcast called Nadenya and Jim, and um, I was just experimenting with it. I was trying to figure out how do you how do you do this. It seems like something everybody does now. So right. And so it was funny because you didn't have a podcast when we started talking, and the next thing I know, you had a podcast before mine was even out. So I was like, wow, this guy's like uh, doing it all. And and that's what this is part of the reason why I'm excited about talking to you today because not only have you been making music all these years but then there's the podcast you've just released uh you you uh, published uh, a great novel which i'm still in the process of reading and i'm interested in anybody who's putting interesting stuff out into the world and you're one of these people who's doing it in lots of different ways um in fact you have a the first line of one of your bios is something like i make stuff and it, and it talks about writing poetry and lyrics and code and all these things. And so this is this is some of the stuff that I, I want to get into talking to you about today. The latest thing, the thing that's most on my mind at the moment is the wonderful, is the wakeful 
Oh my God! I knew the Wakeful Wanderer's Guide to New England and Beyond. I wrote it down and I still screwed it up. Yeah, it's a really tricky title, <laughs> uh, and it's New New England, which uh, n- nobody nobody gets nobody gets that. I I, I don't know. I. I got inspired for the title and then I stuck with it. Wait, so. there's two news in yeah, the there. Yeah, there are. They're oh, right. Man. It's not a typo. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm about halfway through the book and uh, it's it's really fascinating. And uh, it, it, it amazed me when I heard you were putting that out as well. Um, there's this guy, Marto, who's uh, one of the main characters, and he's sort of a combination of a travel writer and historian and a social media star. You've got this sort of Luddite villain dude named Barnabas and uh, and and uh, a woman named Helen who's just sort of uh, looking for Mardo. Anyway, I don't want to try to describe what's happening in this, but I'm midway, midway through it so we can talk about it. But, you know, don't spoil me, and then you won't spoil anybody else who's listening to it as to how it turns out. Very good, yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't know. Have you been... There's one chapter that starts in a completely different place than all the other chapters, and uh, it's around chapter 10... Uh, yes. Okay. I'm on Yale Havens, which is 17. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah there's r- some really interesting turns in this book. Um, and it's there's a lot of different issues at play here. Technology is a big issue, the way we interact with each other, uh, the environment. So w- I'd love to hear just your inspiration for how this started. And, and I'm interested both in why a book after all this other work that you you have been doing and you also have two kids by the way you're married with two kids um you fit in a novel in the last few years so what made you want to do this what made you want to write this book in particular yeah I mean, I should say I didn't I did not want to write a novel um but uh I'm I'm very um let's see, let's see I'm very faithful to inspiration so I think of inspiration as being kind of one of the big gifts. And when some inspiration comes for something, uh, it's, it, it bugs me until I do something about it. Yeah. And that probably is why I end up making so many different kinds of things. Mm. Um, but I was, I remember the exact moment I was, I had done a gig in New York, um, with, with, uh, Dan Cantor, uh, mm. my band who plays drums, uh, Jesse Flack who plays bass and Josh Cantor, different spelling, mm-hmm. uh, who plays keyboards and Dan and Jesse had taken our van back to Boston right after the gig. But Josh and I went, wanted to hang out in New York City. So um, I grew up there. We stayed at my mom's place. And then um, I don't remember what we did, but we went out and met some people and mm-hmm. had a good time. And then we, we grabbed a bus back. We grabbed the mega bus and we took the second floor of the mega bus. <laughs> so, and this is important. I mean, this is not just random. This is actually turns into why I got the inspiration was... We're heading up 87 out of New York City, uh, kind of going along the Hudson there. And I'm looking out the window of the Megabus, and I'm looking down into the cars. And this was, I think it was um, 2013 or, mm-hmm. yeah, some, sometime around 2012 or 13. I think um, my first daughter had already been, already been born. And I'm looking out the window, and I'm, I'm thinking about, I had been thinking a lot about you know, the, the state of the economy and um, just um, the I- ideas around uh, uh, money in general and our, our focus and faith in it and on it. But I'm looking out the window and I look down into these cars and every other car somebody is texting while they're driving. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, I don't know if it's changed since then, but back then it, it wasn't really uh, kind of going around too strongly that that mm. was an extremely dangerous thing. It to might do. be worse now. Right, yeah. right. Um, 
and I and I just started thinking, you know, about my daughters, my daughter at the time, um, and the kind of world that things, you know, that they would grow up in. And I thought, now this sending a little bit of information and receiving a little bit of information is so important to the people in these cars that they're willing to risk uh, an accident, you know, killing somebody else, killing themselves just to get that next little bit of information. And at once I thought, this is not going to go away, right? This is now, it's fulfilling such a deep human need. It's going to be with us for as long as we have technology. And then I started wondering, well, what's this going to be like in 20, 60, 90 years? Mm -hmm. What will this look like? Because it's going to evolve. We're going to make it better or more intense, probably, mm -hmm. more intimate. And all at once, after I had that thought, this whole world around like the Hudson River, post-climate change catastrophe, um, where everyone had their iPhone embedded in their head, mm -hmm. um, kind of downloaded into my head. And I, I think I said something out loud. And Josh remembers that it was like, you know, something happened to you, Jim, on the bus. And then I started like typing into my phone like this idea for a chapter that mm -hmm. came to me that turned into a chapter that you're going to be getting to in a couple more chapters. It was uh -huh. the, kind of the first seminal uh, idea of the book. Is Mardo, uh, I think he's rollerblading or something around um, around the um, a bridge on the Merritt Turnpike. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he can see, you know, it's complete fogged over, and he can, but he can see where everybody is because he's connected to them. You know, they're right. all kind of geolocated around him. And um, and that was the beginning of the idea. And then then I had the idea, right? So then I told everyone, I've got this idea for a really cool novel. I don't really want to write it, uh -huh. but I have a great idea. I wish somebody would write it. <laughs> you were hoping one of your friends would take up the idea <laughs> yeah. so you wouldn't have to worry about it? Yeah. And then I was the guy at the party who was talking about his idea for a novel, <laughs> which is the worst thing you can be. <laughs> and I finally realized, oh, you know, it was when I realized that I could walk across the street, get hit by a car, and the novel would be in my head and mm. just disappear from the world if I died. And so that, actually, the next day I, I started writing it. No kidding. Okay. And and did you start with that uh, that original sort of scene, the thing that went through your head while you were on the merit? No, actually, that ended up in the middle of the book. Okay. So, interestingly, it does sort of anchor the book, and now I'm working on the second book of the same series. Right. And I had an anchoring scene in mind for that mm. book, and it appears, you know, roughly in the same position as um, as the anchoring scene for for that. No, no big action. It wasn't. Yeah. It's more I, like an idea or a an environment yep. uh, scene. It's like an establishing scene, but it ends up in the middle. And um, but I did figure out. Oh, I know. And I got the I got the beginning when I was thinking about. Um, the Age of Aquarius, the song, uh -huh, yes. and uh, the chorus, Let the Sunshine, kept going, mm -hmm. kept going through my head. I thought, you know, somebody should open an inn. Somebody named Lester Sunshine should open <laughs> like a bed and breakfast and call it the Lester Sunshine Inn. <laughs> and uh, then I was like, oh. And I had played near Tarrytown. I had played in a mansion. Mm -hmm. It was actually on the other side of the river, but it was one of these great big... Um, you know, FDR-style mansions um, right. that had been kind of converted into a place where people go and do weddings and, you know, do photography. Right. Um, and I thought, no, it should take place in one of these after mm -hmm. after wealth is completely evaporated and people are just using yeah. spaces kind of <laughs> randomly. 
and uh, and it should be called the Lester Sunshine Inn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. It's great, and I didn't realize about the connection to the age of Aquarius and that 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 song that makes so much sense. That's great. Um, and you know, it's one of the fun things about this book is that you there are all these. You mentioned uh, Tarrytown and. The Tappan Zee Bridge is in there and right. all these places around Philly. You went to school in Philly and Bala Kinwood is in there right. and, and King of Prussia, all these places near where I grew up. So it, even though it's set in this future, like 60 or 90 years, is that kind of what you're Yeah, thinking? I don't get spe- too specific because right. it's so dangerous, yeah, but it's roughly yeah. 80 to 90 years from now. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's just kind of one fun aspect of it because you, you know you're in this imagined future, but yet you feel rooted uh, in a way uh, and have a sense of moving through this changed world sort of post this flood that takes place. Um, but to go back to this thing you were just talking about, so this texting in the cars in your book becomes texting. Am I saying that right? Correct. Texting, yeah. T-H-E-X-T-I-N-G. So people are a- a- able to um, just sort of think their ideas, their their conversations to each other rather than actually doing what we're doing right now and vocalizing a conversation. Right. right. And does that make it a safer world? Um, is that sort of a solution they arrive at um, sort of post all of uh, this sort of thing that you were describing on the merit? Right. It does have, it has an evolution. I try to explain it a little bit, but it's so complicated. So uh, the evolution of it is that uh, the waters rise mm. and the coastline disappears and the most expensive real estate is suddenly gone. Yeah. And that causes that along with um, kind of uh, tropical diseases moving north uh, and other uh, major storms wiping out road, roadways and mm-hmm. all the box stores right, yeah. hit by tornadoes and the trucks stop running and the trains stop moving and the airplanes are grounded because the tornadoes hit the runways. So all the interest, all the commerce basically dies at once. Yeah. And, or, you know, within a couple of years. And uh, people get along by this, and sort of on their phones at first, like they set up local networks and then they give each other, um, they give up, they give each other kudos. Yeah. And if you get a lot of kudos, then people want to give you more kudos or things, you know, mm. they might give you some food instead of kudos. And, and then, um, you might redirect some of that food if you have too much. And so people don't do a trading economy, they do a social economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because the, this idea of sending that little bit of information being connected in that way all the time becomes so natural to us. It's mm-hmm. like, um, it's better than barter. Um, and so then that becomes more sophisticated. And then as the, uh, as that economy speeds up, um, the technology begins to move from the phone into our, into our heads, Mm -hmm. uh, with these kind of adaptive implants and, um, and it becomes a technological telepathy that rules the new economy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so the speed of reputation becomes faster than the speed of money. Yeah, and that is more effective, um, and also more efficient because um, in a reputation economy, the the nature of hoarding uh, or holding on to you know big pools of stuff just mm-hmm. doesn't pool um, because if you pool stuff, your reputation goes down. Yeah, and if you make things available, your reputation goes up, and actually you don't need to own stuff; you just need to use stuff like a home or food or clothes, and then. You can, if they're still good, you can, you know, give them away for more reputation. So mm-hmm. it's a backwards, it's, it's backwards money, yeah. basically. Yeah. 
and that merit is the cons is the word correct. you use for this uh, sort of rating system almost. And right. You go up and down. Like your 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 lead character Mardo has a night of debauchery. He goes he goes he drinks and wakes up with a hangover and right. discovers that his merit rating has plummeted and he and he panics and uh, um, starts to build it back up. And but it's interesting. So there's no cash changing hands in amongst the interconnected right. as they're called so and, and it kind of reminds me of um the and i think I, I i came across this in some of the conversation around your book uh there were people in the 70s and maybe the 60s who were t- envisioning this future that technology was going to pay for us where um, where we might live in in uh, in uh, technology would provide a utopian sort of um, existence of, of kinds where uh, we wouldn't depend on on money and and it would take away some of the social constructs that sort of get in the way of human connection. And um, do you see any connection between that? Absolutely. And what yeah. you're doing? I think I think that, and I had to think a lot about this because what I was writing ultimately was a kind of a a cyber hippie utopia yeah. novel. Um, and I'm very critical of utopias, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I, I push it and press it a lot. And, mm. and, and there are, there are, there are bad sides to this, of course. Um, and people talk about this now, the whole idea of social capital is, yeah. or social merit in China is horrendous. Mm-hmm. And there was a black mirror episode that really showed like the downside of that. Of course it was a combination of money and, social merit. So what I'm really showing is like just pure um, social economy. And it does, t- but it, it gets rid of a lot of problems. Mm. And then it creates a bunch of new ones. So you think about how people are shamed in, um, in our world now. Mm. If you can imagine the effect of shaming, it would, you could starve to death, yeah. right, in this world. So when it's bad, it's really bad. When it's good, mm-hmm. it's even better than being rich because People bring you stuff before you even know you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the ultimate idea of luxury. But that's the upper end, right? And, yeah. and what about the bottom end? And, and then is that does that mean it's not that the whole system isn't generous because it's based on generosity? So there's a lot of questions that come up. Yeah. Um, and I thought there was an element in your question that I've missed because I started talking and I forgot. Um, well, I mean, I think that you covered a lot of it. It's that idea that there, there is this, this, there was this vision that that people had in mind in the sixties and seventies, right. and this cyber hippie kind of thing, and that it played out. Um, uh, it can play out in this way, which has pros and cons. Like one con is that some of these folks in the interconnected community don't have a lot of privacy. Like everybody knows what you're doing and thinking for God's sake. That's right. They have no privacy. Yeah. Zero. But there's also no big brother except yeah. everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everybody else is big brother, but it's kind of distributed. So yeah. it's not quite as nasty seeming. And it, it is based, I realize again, this is what it was. It was, it's based on, on uh, hippie, uh, hippie utopia ideas that I, I didn't intend to do that, but it turns out it, it just is. And then I had to rethink a lot because I came up in more of like a punk era. Mm-hmm. Um, although uh, as a teenager, I went to kind of a hippie camp and I got into that. And I learned how to play guitar and all that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hold on to that kind of lifestyle um, when I moved into college. It was, I felt like that was very naive. Yeah. And yet when I've gone back to look at a lot of the thinking that took place during that time, these were people that 
you know, whose parents had fought in the Second World War. They were part of that generation. And then, and then they were, they had a radical notion that things were bad enough, we should just give all that up, just throw that all out the window and start again with something better. And we'll think of it, we'll think of something better and we'll just do that. And from that kind of culture, you get Apple computer, you get, Mm -hmm. you know, a ton of technology that comes out of, because they're not just thinking outside of the box. They've, they've thrown the box away, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what, that's what leads to the society in my book. So it's much more, it's not cyberpunk, you know, which really doesn't do that. Punk just rebels. Yeah. It doesn't throw the box out, but hippies threw the box out and that, (laughs) That's more interesting in this yeah. case. Well, and you know, it's funny what you just said reminded me of what some folks, some friends of mine said about the Trump election that this would activate, um, it would be a positive in that it would force some sort of insurrection from the left that would sort of reset things, throw out what's not working in our society and our government and put us in a good place right now. And you were listening to the hearings, uh, the impeachment hearings right. that were go- are going on today. It's uh, Friday, November 15th, as I as I walked in here. And uh, it kind of feels like we're actually further along on the path that you predicted when you started writing this book uh, a couple of uh, you know five six years ago before Trump got elected by the yep. way yep. so it's interesting uh, do you have a sense of well what I was going to ask you was um, did writing this book alleviate um, some concerns you have about the future and the world and when you finished it didn't you feel like well I got that out of my system I know it's not going to turn out like that so I wonder what is going to happen did did anything like that happen for you in the writing of this I uh it did give me hope to be able to imagine a future in which it's not a pure zombie apocalypse, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know, don't get me wrong, this is not a purely utopian right. situation. There's, there's a, it's like a utopian-dystopian mix yep. uh, of elements. There's a whole half of humanity that will not go in this direction, mm-hmm. and they are in hard revolt against the interconnected. Yeah. And they have a point, right? Mm-hmm. This is post-human. These people are cyborgs, yeah. right? I mean, literally cyborgs. They have technology implanted, implanted in their brain. Implanted brains. in their body, in yeah. their brain, yeah. yeah. And, you know, of course, within the interconnected, it's like, well, that's just, that's just how humans are going to be now. Yeah. But the traditionalists and the neo-feudalists and the, um, and the what are the, what, are the, what else? Oh, the, they're called phobics by the interconnected. So there's, everybody's using slurs against each other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, you know, they're like, no, that, you know, where's God? Where's family, for crying out loud? Yeah. There's no family. Right. Um, Where's where's the marketplace? You know, that was a that was a fair exchange. You know, you did away with all of that, and um, and so there's sort of a philosophical battle going yeah. on. But it did give me hope because even though it's not a perfect future, it is a future, mm-hmm. and um, and it made me it reconnected me with what I love about sci-fi, which is you have to be bold enough to imagine something that's difficult to imagine and that freaks you out a little bit and would probably freak your kids out and maybe your kids' kids. Yeah. And if you can do that, then you're kind of onto something. <laughs> this is the way you're walking. This is the way you breathe. This is the air around you. And this is the sound of your feet. This is the way you're talking. These are the people you meet spread out on the path before you. Just like every other road that leads to Now, 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 now. One of the
one of the things that interests me about you is that you do all these different things. You put out um, ideas and information and stories in lots of different forms out into the world. And uh, your music also is this sort of multifaceted thing. So if anyone hasn't listened to Jim's Big Ego, which is the name of your band, check them out. And I, I, I was li- I've been listening to a lot of the music over the last few days, just kind of refamiliarize myself. And I'd sort of do a stream of consciousness thing. Here are some of the words and phrases that come to mind when I think of your music, Jim. Humor, punk, rap, spoken word, hip-hop, funk, love ballads, folk, snippets of old lectures, like there's someone talking about Kepler at one point, the astronomer, Uh, Beastie Boys vibe, and there's the live shows where there's this improvisational thing that always happens. You're very funny on stage. You're almost like a stand-up comedian. You did this thing, I think it's called napkin poetry. Napkin or poetry. When I saw you at Passim sometime in the last few months, we all did that. Um, uh, the Ego and the Oracle is this song. You spin a wheel and play songs. So there's a lot of fun. There's also a lot of great musicianship. So... Just to go back to this idea, the multifaceted, it's not just somebody up on stage playing music and then off the stage and that's the end of it. And that's great. You know, I've seen bands that do that. Um, but uh, you get, you give a lot through your music and uh, I think it makes it endlessly fascinating to go and listen to it. Um, so was that always in the picture? How did that evolve? Were you Did you start out as kind of a folk singer, kind of a guy with a guitar and doing straight songs and then all this other stuff evolved over time. Yeah, so it came from my hippie past um, where, you know, I, in my teenage years, I uh, in the summer I went to a camp called Camp Thoreau, which was just oh. brilliant. It was so good. Where was that? It was in Thetford Center, Vermont, but there was one oh, in New yeah. Paltz too. There were two of them. Okay. And originally, I believe, it was a it was a camp during the McCarthy period for blacklisted, the kids of blacklisted adults. Okay. So it had strong mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. you know, foundation. And by the time I hit it, it was in the late 70s. Um, it, was, it was a, you know, it was just a, a camp where everybody grew their hair out and wore, you know, flannel shirts or, you know, um, logo t-shirts and mm-hmm. um, uh, just let it, you know, walked around barefoot. And, you uh, said your parents were conservative. Yeah, actually. Like politically conservative, socially my, conservative? My mom was California Republican. Okay. And my dad, my da- my mom is not now a California yeah. Republican, <laughs> but she was at the time. And my dad was a, an independent, but you know, mm. his favorite president was Truman, okay. who dropped the bombs. You okay. know? So it was... Um, so it seems surprising that they would have sent you to this camp in, in Vermont. Which I don't understand, actually. <laughs> I don't... They... I. They send it because they knew another parent, oh, okay. and they didn't know another camp. They tried right. sending me to a military camp first, Ooh. and um, the cannon went off in the morning camp, Ticonderoga, I think. Oh, you actually went there? Okay. And I went there, and it was like the, you know, there was a cannon in the morning. You stood at attention. It was insane. Wow. And uh, and I yeah, I just visibly withered in that <laughs> environment. Please send me to another camp, stat. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're in the hippie camp. And then I was, yeah, it was like the furthest thing from yeah. that. I was in a hippie camp. And uh, I remember the people who taught me guitar. Um, uh, it, was just, it was Lane Arie, who I think is still out there playing. And, and Joe Rodriguez, who actually taught me pretty much everything. And I'm not really sure that I've learned anything more than Joe taught me originally. I think I have the same set of chords. But he, uh, he was great. And he's still, um, he's still, I think he's still playing music. I mean, everybody was singing Holly Near songs. And mm. I was trying to learn some Bob Dylan songs. Mm-hmm. Bob Dylan was sort of my hero. Yeah. And um, 
And so, yeah, and then I started writing songs immediately. As soon mm-hmm. as I could like play enough chords to, I would write a few songs. So like, like, when I think of a song like, say, Stress, for example, which is you know, kind of a hit for you in mm-hmm. a way, um, you know, it's like a, it's a very funky tune, R&B-ish kind of uh, sound to the guitar at the beginning of the tune. And then you, you, you tell this story that's kind of a spoken word narrative that comes out about this guy who drinks too much coffee and is all stressed out about things. So um, did that, you know, you did that naturally evolve out of being a solo musician or did that, was that something that came out of being in collaboration with other musicians? Um, you know, how did, how did you arrive at that? Like what took you to that place? Yeah, good question. I, I, at Dylan? I did, uh, right. I start with Dylan. So there's subterranean homesick blues. Yep. Um, mm. which I learned and I could sing at one time I could sing it like backwards or something. Oh my God. <laughs> and, um, and really fast, you know, so I was yeah. just playing with that. And, and so that, but then a long time went by and, I was living in Boston, and I and I found myself out on 128 trying to get into the city. I was staying in Wayland, and then okay. I, I had to drive into the city at like 9 o'clock in the morning for mm. a temp job or something like that. Mm. And I could feel the just the pure rage, you know, in the other cars around me. And, uh-huh. and you know, you could hear it with the honking and everybody being incredibly frustrated. And I thought, this is so stressful. I mean, like, yeah. this is a really stressful way to start your day. And then um, that, you know, that idea of being kind of addicted to that feeling of stress because it kind of pumps you up a little bit mm-hmm. um, brought me the chorus. And then I had to hammer out the verses over many months. It was really hard to get everything to fit together. But what I wanted to do was inhabit the person yeah. who lived that life of kind of pure stress. At the time, I was a singer-songwriter with no money, yeah. and it was stressful to try to figure out how to pay rent. But mm-hmm. otherwise, I had... I was basically doing nothing except thinking about songs to write. Yeah. Um, you know, it was unsustainable. <laughs> but it was, at that summer, it was definitely like that for me. And I was trying to go from the outside into the mind of somebody who kind of lived this very stressful mm-hmm. existence and then find some humor, you know, uh, yeah. to kind of turn it turn it back on itself and and uh, show it from the inside out. Yeah. I'm addicted to stress, that's the way that I get things done If I'm not under pressure, then I sleep too long And I hang around like a bum I think I'm going nowhere and that makes me nervous Everybody's out to get me, but I feel alright Everybody's out to get me, but I feel alright Everybody's out to get me, but I feel alright Everybody's thinking about me It's the little things that get you It's the little things that get you when you weren't paying attention It's the little things that get you It's the little things that get you It's the little things that get you when you weren't paying attention Trying to get down on my caffeine consumption So when I get up, I just have one cup of coffee And I like to have another cup of coffee with my breakfast And on the way to work, I like to get a cup of coffee Like the kind of cup of coffee that you get with the donuts If I never get the donut, I just have a cup of coffee And when I get to work, I like to have a cup of coffee I like to have There a was coffee. a time when you, you were featured on NPR a few times And I know you, you've toured the States and England um, Did Was there a time when you said Okay, I've made a lot of progress and and said i'm not gonna this rock star thing isn't gonna quite going to happen did you ever think it was going to happen and then you sort of started to uh develop some of these other ways of making money or you know i wonder how how did that was there a switch that flipped for you and what was that like well yeah i mean and i i said it sort of it does tie into that time when i was basically freeloading yeah um i realized i couldn't just keep doing that and i had to find something i could do that would that would pay the bills so i could keep playing my music Um, because I mean although I toured a lot and and I was on the road a lot 
I was with a band, and a band sucks up all the money, and yeah. and then the van sucks up the rest, and then the hotels. <laughs> uh, even if, you know, you can only crash on on people's floors for so long right. before you get sick. So, it it um, it never really um, kind of you know bought me a house or anything like right. that. It was just kind of getting by when I was doing it full time, and I did start to develop, you know, start to use some of these design skills that that I kind of inherited from my dad and from my mom. Um, my brother has gone really far with him. He, he does, um, he writes uh, stories now for cartoons out in, uh, at Disney. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. You mentioned your brother is an artist. I just discovered I didn't know this until recently. You have an uncle uh, named Carmine. Right. Who was uh, a great comic book artist. Or maybe still is. Uh, in, uh, no, he's passed away. Okay. But um, yes, he he d- redesigned the Flash. Right, he took the helmet yeah. off the head, and put the wings uh, on the ears and on the feet, and that was revolutionary. And so the Barry Allen Flash was developed by my my uncle and I think one other guy. Mm. Um, and he also developed uh, a number of other characters, most of them villains, but some like the Chimp Detective. Um, the elongated man, sort of like a uh, plastic man, but okay. like the DC version. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was president of DC Comics for a short oh, time wow. in in the seventies. Um, and he's part of the you know he's part of the Silver Age of mm-hmm. of comic books is um, that whole um, pantheon <laughs> mm-hmm. of of uh, people who created comic books. And so did he influence you? Uh, was, was that in, in sort of the air for you as you were developing more of, of your design uh, abilities and business ultimately? Um, I, was, I always loved the design of frames yeah. you know, and pages of comic books, and there's a real art to it. Mm. Um, I've never been very good at that sort of mm. thing, um, but I did find that I was good when the Mac came along mm. at um, creating you know, simple layouts. And I didn't try to get too far into it because I just needed that to pay the bills. So I could work at a company and, you know, be, be like their art department and do slideshows for them and, and stuff like that. What got complicated was when the internet came along. Yeah. And so I had learned a lot about typography and learned a lot about, um, layout and kind of harmony of, um, of dimension and shape and color. And then there was this new medium that was being born. My friend Don Smith came over and he said, you know, you should really look into this. And I'm like, well, it looks like it's just typing text into a, you know, into a text editor. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it shows up on the page, but it doesn't look very good. Mm -hmm. And everything was gray in a Netscape browser. This is early HTML. Really early. Yeah. Yeah. You could put like an animated GIF. That was the coolest thing. (laughs) I remember. JavaScript wasn't even happening yet. Yeah. so and then Flash came along and I and I I did a lot of animation in Flash, mm-hmm. which is now gone. Um, yeah. And sometime between uh, nineteen ninety six and uh, two thousand two, I I had built a really cool website for my band. It was in Flash, and then I got uh, a, an award, the New England Web Design Award for that, um, which had to be accepted on on my behalf because I was on tour, <laughs> and then. Um, and then people asked me, you know, can you make a website for my band? Mm. And I began to make a lot of websites for a lot of musicians. And then I realized I did not want to make every calendar change for them. So I began programming. I learned, I taught myself programming, um, certain kinds of programming and database design, 
in order to create a system, because there weren't really any in mm-hmm. 2002 or 2001. There was, um, there was Slashdot and Geeklog. I don't think if WordPress was out, I didn't see mm-hmm. it or know about it. So um, I started building my own system called Slab that, that ran all of those sites and so they could, they could go and edit their own website. And now that is sort of the basis of our of our company yeah. is our software. I had a conversation with someone recently on the podcast, this guy Charles Giuliano, actually, and he he was sort of railing against the possible future for, mus- for musicians. And yes, it is kind of a, a, a tough road to hoe to make a living as a musician. Oh, yeah. But this, there's many people in this town of Boston who sort of do music and do other things or do music in a sort of local way that it becomes a, a living. And, uh, you know, I'm just grateful for people like you who are able to continue to put new musical work out there and find a way to do it when it's clearly not uh, a prime income for you so uh, right and and you know the really hard part of your question that didn't get to or maybe avoided was was there a time when I realized I wasn't Mm going to make it the way I wanted to make it in music and yeah there was Mm -hmm. and it was really incredibly painful and you are setting yourself up for that when you start when you start on this yeah so uh, yeah, it sounds like I'm kind of like, you know, blissfully just creating a lot of stuff, but I actually had ambition, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, a lot of that didn't reach fruition, and that was really hard to come to terms mm-hmm. with. And all of this building a company was just to support my music out yeah, of it, you know? Yeah. So then suddenly I'm looking at, well, so what am I actually doing? Am I, am I going to stop playing music? Um, and I, I think there was just a moment where I thought... Um, would you play music if there was never any hope of any kind of success or reward from it, mm-hmm. aside from just playing? And I realized, yeah, I would. I would absolutely do that mm-hmm. um, because I love it. Yeah. And when I don't do it, I become a kind of a cranky curmudgeon, right. and, I, and I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then there are these wonderful moments that are heightened, that are rarefied, you know, where you're, you're creating... An entertainment, an entertainment environment in a room for people that they're going to remember and you're going to remember. And it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't kind of done that. So, mm-hmm. no, there's no monetary, I mean, there's very little monetary reward. Right. But there's huge life reward. Mm-hmm. And, and it's worth it. Yeah. You know, uh, and I'll keep playing so long as people want to hear. So this might be a tough way to end it, but what, what have you learned from all of this? Are there any sort of life lessons that you pass along to people um, uh, when you think about what you've achieved in your life? And, um, you know, if somebody were to look at what you do and said, I want to try to create a life like that, what would you say to them? It, it, it's, it's important to recognize that, that, you're, that you've done it, right? So let's, so let's just assume you've, you've got inspiration to create a bunch of stuff. You're, you're making songs or you're making um, paintings or you're creating skateboards or you're, you know, you've invented a new kind of bike or whatever it is. You have an idea. First of all, nobody else is going to do it, so you better do it. Mm-hmm. Don't think your idea is special, whether it's a song or a book or a, you know, a painting. Um, there's seven billion of us. So mm-hmm. if any, if you get a one in a million idea, 
there are 7,000 people with the same yeah. idea. <laughs> so the thing that makes you different is if you do it. Mm-hmm. Because some, you know, half of those people, more than half of those people can't, aren't in a situation where they have the means yeah. to do it. And then the other bunch, most of them aren't, don't have the courage. So you need to find the courage to do the thing when you get the inspiration to do it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're doing it and you find that you've made time and you, and you started you know, creating these things, give yourself credit. I was watching one of my, my wife and I, we have a favorite movie, um, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, right. And, I have not seen that. Ah, oh, it's great. Okay. And uh, so Mike Myers is basically mm. driving around in a, in a cool little car and going to poetry, poetry readings and, yeah. and, um, and, and just, you know, kind of writing and being creative. Mm-hmm. And I said to Catherine, I said, man, I wish I had that life. And she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You do have that life. That's right. Yeah. It and just doesn't look quite like that because you're busy a lot, but that's your life. Uh, so it's the Wakeful Wanderer's Guide to New New England. And Jim and Fantino, uh, keep on doing all the good work. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun, Rob. Thank you. I had a dream. My dream became a day job And now I cannot find a friend To listen to me complain I had a scheme But then my scheme became a nightmare I gotta find Learn more about Jim Infantino and his novel at JimInfantino.com The three songs you heard bits of in this podcast were In Order, Now, Stress, and Utopia, all three recorded and released by Jim's Big Ego. And now my pick of the week. I want to recommend a podcast launched earlier this year. I actually met the host here in Boston. It's called The Pledge, and Allison Daskal Hausman hosts it and produces it. The podcast, The Pledge, is an exploration of political activism through audio narrative. Each season focuses on the work of activists in a particular U.S. state. Season one looked at Alabama, and season two, the current one, Virginia. Great interviews with strong people really thoughtfully put together and produced. If you're looking for a new lens through which to stay engaged in what's happening in American political life these days, listen to this podcast, The Pledge. I think it's a really great way of just sort of looking, hopefully, at the future. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music for this podcast. Subscribe to the Media Narrative Podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschild. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for listening. You told- Utopia With the waves we're drifting 